The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. How much booch are you getting through a day, Ben? Um, I probably about a litre. About a litre, and is it? And what about you, Bells? Um, I've been taking a slightly more disciplined approach, so I'm about half a litre a day. It's my little treat. Mm. And are you on that bougie booch or just the regular supermarket booch? I'm on the same booch as him. I'm on that booch. I'm on the passion passion mango booch. Is it now and then? I'm yeah, now and, and then I mix it up and I get the 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 booch cola. Right. Yeah. And do you? That's just a wild Friday night. Do you match your? Do I pair it? Do I have paired booches? <laughs> I was thinking whether you might pair the booch with the old vape, like a bit of a. You know, nectar treat. Yeah, like a double mango hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a bit of that. And if we're having like a degustation meal, then there'll be like several mm. different bottles of booch. A musée booch. It's a musée booch. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Kia ora tato. my name is Toby Manhai. This has gone by lunchtime. It's deep into the night of Tuesday, October 26, 2021. It's deep into the night of the Delta outbreak in Tamaki Makoto, week 10. And at this point, we're all just walking around in the rain and the wind like extras in Night of the Living Dead, desperately clinging on to our picnic sets <laughs> in the hope of some socially distanced human contact. Happy Halloween and tēnā koe, Annabelle Lee Mather. Tēnā koe, Toby Manhai. How are you? I'm good. I'm basically the Steve Irwin of Point Chevalier now. Mm. Do you know this? This is true. And what? Did you slay a slay a crocodile? Um, kind of. Yeah, stung by a jellyfish on Point Chev Beach. What? Again, very close. Stand on a blue bottle. (laughs) Pretty close. So what happened was, Hmm. we found a pigeon in our that like lives around our house who had been shot through the neck with a dart. Whoa! (laughs) But wait, there's more. Then I managed to catch it with an ingenious trap I invented. Yeah. (laughs) And I took it to the vet, and the vet removed the barbed dart from its neck, and now it's going to live at the Bird Rescue Centre in Green Bay. She's been offered all sorts of interviews. The pigeon. The hui's after her Sunday. Everyone's coming in. She's been offered sponsorship Hmm. deals. Yeah. She's going to beat the bats to the bird of the year, the pigeon that survived the... Yeah. What... Is this... uh, Where did the dart come from? Do you have any clue? I Googled it, and it looks like like a dart 
gun situation that you have for hunting had like a big orange bobble on one side and it was barbed. Mm. So during lockdown, someone's got bored and decided to very reasonably, you know, shoot a pigeon through the neck. Um, But I saved her and I'm probably going to be on the next series of Dancing with the Stars. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. (laughs) Well, I didn't expect it, but I feel like this podcast has just taken a sudden pivot towards true crime. And over the course of the next eight to ten episodes, we will uncover the Point Chevalier pigeon assassin. Mm. Ben, did anything remotely that interesting happen to you in the last week or so. No, I've got a few theories though. I think that it was probably one of the jam needles mm. that were, you know, dropped by the Eagle helicopter <laughs> on top of the anti- the anti-vax. <laughs> oh my god, wait till Liz Gunn gets hold of this. Dropped over the domain on Super Saturday to try and get them over the 130,000 mark as, as Brian Tamaki <laughs> congregated his flock. Um... The yeah, what's shit? Nothing, yeah. nothing's happened. By the time people hear this, it'll be week eleven of house arrest. Week eleven of of doing the mahi yeah. on behalf of other New Zealanders. Initially, it was you know I was like you, yeah. you're welcome. Now I'm like, would any of you like to tag in? Yeah. You know, do a shift. <laughs> Like, maybe any, any public servants yeah. down there like just yeah. want to kind of fucking tag in for a bit. Well, I just read a column by Claire Trevett, the New Zealand Herald political editor, arguing that Jacinda Ardern should come to Auckland and spend some time here. Yep, we'll do it. We'll do a house we'll, swap. We'll, we'll, I'll, we'll do, do one, yeah. I'll go to Premier House just for the week just to make sure no one steals anything. Okay. Um, you have to do five days isolation. Clark can bring you a whole new house. He moves them around if you like. <laughs> I could do some I could do some homeschooling with Neve. Oh, that'd be nice. She seems very nice. Hey, Tina Tiller is with us tonight. Oh my god. The New Zealand's greatest renewable energy source, <laughs> Tina Tiller. I don't even know if she's mic'd up. She's but we can see there she is. There she is. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tina, for reaching deep into the evening with us. Um, who knows what time it is? Who knows what day it is? Can I say also a thanks to spin-off members? Can I say also a thanks to every listener who's made it this far, so therefore you're devoted or a member of our families, to go online and vote for us on the website nzpodcastawards.com and vote for Gone by Lunchtime in the audience choice category, whether you like us or pity us. It'd be really good because our self-esteem is on the floor at the moment. And... and Ben? Well, while you're online, mm. go to uh, birdoftheyear.org.nz <laughs> mm. and do a write-in vote for Annabelle's mangy pigeon with a dart in its neck. The harpooned <laughs> pigeon. Mm. Yeah. That really is the... Give it a... That is, the, that is like the new, the new happy feet for the country, isn't it, Annabelle? <laughs> the harpooned <laughs> pigeon of Point Chevalier. Mm. Pfizered through its belly. <laughs> Hey, I thought we could start with a quiz. I love a quiz. Yeah, you know, just to uh, to mix things up. Do you want to go first, Ben? Sure. Yep. Okay, Ben. I'm going to read this out to you. You listening? Let's go. Okay. Quote: The whole of health system will focus its resources, but can continue to manage primary care, public health, and hospitals. Is that a alert level two? B, the COVID-19 protection framework traffic light system orange, or C, alert level 
three Auckland step three. Th- uh, I think that's uh, or- orange. Got it. Nailed it. Been paying attention. Well done, Ben. Annabelle. And for you. A lot of pressure. Okay. Mm. <clears throat> Quote. Event facilities like cinemas, casinos, and theatres can open with a limit of 50 people in a defined space, wearing face coverings and two-metre physical distancing. Is that A, alert level two, B, the COVID-19 protection framework traffic light system orange, C, alert level three, Auckland step three, or D, the Harpooned Pigeons Point Chevalier Guild. I don't remember her saying anything about the casinos, so mm. can I can I go with A? Alert level two? Sure. Maybe. No, it's actually alert level three, Auckland step three, which we may or may not get to, but it might also be alert level two. I haven't really I don't think I think alert level two might be more than that. But thanks for playing. <laughs> I've got I've got ten more questions. We'll do those at the end. Alert, alert level two. Alert level two is like you can be at the casino, but it's only table service, which is really you know one of those perverse incentive things. You know, it's like you can you can come to the casino, but only if you're going to like set up at the blackjack table for eighteen hours and pee in a cup. Right. Like, right. I, I literally thought the answer to Ben's question was Andrew Little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so confused. Okay. Well, this is it, right? So the um, on Friday last week, brunch time, 10 a.m., in the banquet hall at the Beehive, we got the traffic light system uh, revealed to us. We now have uh, three systems, kind of. We've got the we've got the original the the original gangster alert level system in most of the country. Alert level two. We've got the alert oh. level three step system. Which we are here, we are here. Those of us who are in Tamaki Makoto have that. We're in alert level three, step one. And we've got the traffic light system, which isn't in place anywhere yet and is designed, of course, to incentivize uh, and encourage and uh, push with a bit of carrot and a bit of stick the move towards a, a sort of more, I guess, medium term opening up strategy. How did did you guys watch that on Friday morning? What did you make of it? Does it seem like a necessary, useful development or too confusing, Annabelle? Well, I, I'm kind of a fan of like a lollipop stick system. Oh, okay. You know, like a, a stop go and then the various <laughs> levels are like the look you get from the person holding the lollipop stick, yes. you know, like the church her eyes, which means like yeah. it's all good. You can go out and party or the the scowly look, which means you can go but like don't talk to anyone. <laughs> and then like a more kind of like an indigenous kind of street vibe. Okay. Is that it? There's just two settings. Yeah, but it's in the facial expressions that. Okay, right. That's how you know the various this. like levels and what you can do within them. Or the kind of the slightly grinning look away, which is do what you like, just don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, or the 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 stop, but with pukana, which means that you know not to like don't. Well, that that means no masks, right? I think it's the opposite. All mask, if you like a sack. Uh, surely, if there's surely if there's pukana, you, you're not wearing a mask, otherwise no one could tell. Well, just with the eyes. Oh, okay, tell. right, yeah, gotcha. Not if, yeah. Ben, what did you make of it? It is a tricky thing to balance, right? Because obviously, a critical component of it is that it folds in the vaccination target. 
we need 90% to be achieved in every DHB, although, again, there are a few variations there and that Auckland mm. can go there earlier if it's three DHBs get to 90, so can the South Island. But it not only does that, that's sort of the, that's the carroty bit. The carroty bit is that. And the sticky bit, the sticky, stick, sticky, stick, stick bit is that mandates, vaccine mandates will be kind of uh, sewn into the traffic light system. So, and we had on Tuesday afternoon the post-cabinet press conference, those mandates were amplified to the extent that all employees and retailers that operate under that system with the vaccination requirement, for vaccination certificates, they'll need to be van- vac- vaccinated too, etc. But Now, uh, re- retail is not part of it, is that right, I think? Oh, hospitality, a big pattern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hos- hosp- hospitality, and um, which I think is, you know, one of one of the issues is... Hairdressers. Uh, yeah, a, a lot of it sort of seems, you know, we, we are getting into that kind of messy sort of ad hoc grab bag kind of scenario that, you know, pretty much every other country in the world has grappled with and and we've avoided because of our somewhat elegant, if shifting, alert level system. But there was a cleanliness to elimination and so that's sort of unavoidable to a degree, right? Yeah, like that's the idea right. that it can be, you know, pure and simple and clean oh, yeah, is yeah. impossible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now now we've got real hard decisions and on, on Friday, you know, I one thing I really didn't like was the language from the Prime Minister talking about, you know, we will be allowing those people who are vaccinated greater freedoms uh, than other people, mm-hmm. you know, as as if these freedoms sort of spring from the government, you know. I mean, the, the, right, the inalienable right to get a haircut mm. could only be given to me and taken away from me as a free man by the Almighty, and he took it away when I was about 23. Mm. Um, but it's not really, you know, the role of government to sort of say that. Now, of course, of, of course there are, you know, there are emergency situations, there are pan- pandemic powers, and you need to see sort of restrictions on your rights, on your freedoms, for the public good, for public safety. But I think, you know, the rhetoric, and we, we saw it over the weekend, you know, with poor old Dave Dobbin kind of, you know, <laughs> metaphorically starting a, a Twitter riot on Queen Street, you know, that, that that really doesn't accord with the way that a lot of people see their lives, you know, that they're only allowed to do things if the government tells them that they can. It's sort of a Leviathan um, theory, is that what you're seeing? A bit of old, uh, your old mate Thomas Hobbes. Well, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think they brought it back a bit better this week, you know, in terms of talking about public safety in terms of, you know, limiting rights, Mm. you know, people's rights being balanced. But, you know, I I think there is a serious, I think there is a serious problem developing because essentially the basis of the traffic light system is that life will be made harder for you if you don't have the vaccine. Mm. Now, that's probably inevitable, Mm. Um, you know, particularly, say, large gatherings. But, you know, we are creeping kind of towards de uh, de facto compulsory vaccination, which was something that people were told was not on the cards. Um, The the other thing, though, is that uh, to me it all seems a bit like shadow boxing in the sense that we only enter the traffic light system once every DHB in the country, you know, outside Auckland, outside maybe the South Island, gets to 90%. Well, I mean, Tairawhiti is not even close. Bay of Plenty is not within Kui. Um, It's not clear to me that we'll get even, you know, near 90% in those areas Mm. before what is, you know, in reality, if not in terms of what the Prime Minister has sort of explicitly said, the drop-dead date of Christmas 
you know, the government, the government signaled very strongly that come Christmas, it's every man for themselves, uh, whatever the vax rate is at that point. Yes, and obviously there may be, uh, whether or not the system can hold until then, I guess is a good question. Certainly, though, it feels a bit like it's hard to keep the team of 5 million going with all its kind of uh, unity when you actually just need to use every possible tool available, including telling people that they are not going to be able to enjoy all of those freedoms. Obviously, the core ones remain, but basically it's really critical to get vaccinated. Annabelle, one of the one of the questions that emerged in the lead-up to that traffic light framework was that a bunch of experts, uh, public health experts, including Māori public health experts, were consulted, uh, I think a group of 30 with the uh, Prime Minister's chief science advisor were involved, and maybe others as well. And uh, some of those people recommended, and reportedly some some Māori members of Cabinet too wanted to see a 90% rate for Māori uh, for vaccination rates because, of course, it's a pretty blunt instrument. Any number that leaves particular communities, even within particular DHBs, exposed. What did you make of all of that? Um, well, I, I think just on the vaccine passport, I think that um, mm. while I see the logic of it, I think that there is going to be a cohort of Māori who, as tangata whenua, are offended by the notion that they will require a passport to move through their own country. Mm-hmm. In terms of the traffic light system, I think that obviously it's buying the government a bit more time. You know, it's incentivising DHBs to engage with Māori. It's percentage-based as opposed to deadline-based, where it was, you know, be vaccinated by X date or it's every man to themselves. Mm. Um but the issue with it not specifying that it need to have a 90% vaccination rate for Māori is that Māori were the last out the gates when it came to vaccination because our population is, is younger. So not only have they had a shorter amount of time to catch up and also live often in really dispersed communities. But they've also been exposed to misinformation for much longer Mm. and it's going to take some time to work through that. Mm. You know, obviously the 120 million would have been helpful to have earlier so that community groups aren't having to crowdfund raise on pages like give a little to reach into those communities. And it's not even just that people are necessarily hard to reach in a social sense. Often, you know, in places like Te Tairawhiti, it's purely the tyranny of distance that's making it hard for them to get vaccinated. I mean, there's still a lot of questions around what it means in terms of travel into regions that are on different settings than what your region may be. Mm. But certainly it hasn't been welcomed by Māori leadership. You know, we've seen the Iwi Leaders Forum reject it, Māori Women's Welfare League, Māori Council and a number of others. I think, you know, to be fair to the Māori MPs, they've probably fought really hard for that $120 million to try and mitigate it. But certainly it doesn't make the team of $5 million feel like a team of $5 million anymore if Māori aren't specifically included in that target. And I think the government has 
perhaps underestimated the emotional attachment that people had to the elimination strategy. And I think many people thought that we were going to remain in elimination until we got to 90%. So I think the, the gradual opening up has not only confused people, but also there's a sense of perhaps abandonment that, that the government has moved into suppression before we've even got anywhere near that target. Hmm. I, I get this kind of perpetual sort of sense of, you know, not to sound like a teen Vogue writer in 2016, but that the government is kind of gaslighting the public a little bit. You know, we saw it with the the very, very reticent kind of attitude to admitting that elimination was no longer the goal. You know, now they're, they're saying, well, look, nothing, no one goes into the traffic light system until it's 90%. But at the same time, they say, well, you know, Aucklanders will be able to leave for Christmas. You know, there doesn't seem to be any serious contemplation from government figures that there will be lockdowns around New Zealand by Christmas, which gives us about 10 weeks to get every DHB in the country up to 90%. And, you know, I mean, I like to have a sunny optimism about these things, but that's not going to happen. So, you know, I I think this 90% figure is going to be thrown by the wayside as well. And, you know, for a long time we were told, you know, vaccine passports wouldn't be mandatory within New Zealand, that, you know, vaccines would not be compulsory. Today, legislation was announced that will make it de facto compulsory for 40% of employees. I mean, you you don't have to be a hardcore anti-vaxxer to feel that the government is not being straight up here and that that's going to have consequences for, you know, public trust and buy-in. So many of these things. It's, it's kind of an, I was just going to say, it's kind of an interesting situation with the DHBs because on mm. one hand the government has such little faith in them that they're basically closing them up next year and yet we've entrusted them with this really centralised vaccination Program instead of kind of spreading it out more quickly amongst, um, you know, GPs and all of that stuff. And then on the flip side, like when you look at some of those DHBs that are based in in high population Māori communities, they've got enormous obstacles to overcome. Like if you look at, at Northland, you know, they still haven't had a treaty settlement. They've been on the end of grievous treaty breaches for, you know, 170 plus years. Instead of getting economic development, they got their meatworks closed down. Um, Instead of getting a community swimming pool, they got a prison built in their backyard. I mean, just giving birth in Northland is like a a life or death situation for people who live out in the Wap Wap. So I kind of feel a bit of sympathy for them that now the onus is on them to get everyone to 20% when actually this is about a litany of government failures that has built this enormous distrust between Māori and the state. And it's not just this government's fault, you know, it goes back a long way. But for the DHB to then be sort of Mm. charged with getting all these people over the line just seems like an enormous task. But, but, I mean, that's the other thing, right? I mean, we, you know... I suppose, I suppose it doesn't do too much good to, to look back, but at the same time, you know, as Annabelle was saying, who are the toughest group, who are the most under-vaccinated group, 
Well, it's the it's the same it's the same people who were the last ones off the rank for the government to give a fuck about getting them vaccinated. It's it's young people. It's young Maori, particularly between eighteen and thirty. They're the ones with the lowest rate, right? And it, it just strikes me as a little bit rich for you know the government to not even really be in touch with this community or this group before there's actually a Delta outbreak. And then to be saying, look, you, you guys are dragging your feet. You know, the, the onus is on you to get vaccinated because you're holding everybody up. Mm. I mean, mm. you, you know. <sighs> Where's the team of five million been for the last, you know, X amount of decades when these guys are on the pointy end of everything? I think another thing that's going to be interesting to watch, you know, as the outbreak grows is Māori are now 32% of infections but 24% of hospitalisations, so that's an 8% difference. And Europeans are 19% of infections, but 17% of hospitalisations, so just a 2% difference. So in terms of who is actually getting to have hospital care and who isn't, you know, and what those percentages are are going to be really interesting to watch to see if institutional racism or unconscious bias becomes another obstacle to Māori who are infected getting the hospital care that they may require. Yeah, although I think that's actually one reason for a bit of optimism. Keith Lynch uh, did a very good, quite lengthy explainer on stuff. One of the, you know, sort of bright spots, if you could say it, is that among, you know, vaccination rates are far too low among Māori, but old people, pākeke, are actually really well vaccinated. And and because the Māori population is so young, you know, we we know the the major determinant of how well you come out of COVID is age. And so, you know, there there is a reason for some optimism that if even if the virus spreads throughout all these communities, actually the young ones you know, should be able to, by and large, come through it okay. And, and, and of course, it would have been, uh, as Willie Jackson has pointed out, it would have risked inviting controversy if you didn't go for older people first, you know, who are obviously the ones who are more at risk of hospitalisation and losing their lives to COVID. So it's hard to argue with that being prioritised. What I don't see, though, is why it took until... <laughs> a couple of days ago to put $120 million into boosting outreach in terms of the vaccination of those, you know, hard to reach areas or whatever you want to call it. And the the testimony from so many people that there were approaches made to the ministry to try and do localised, evolved, uh, bespoke efforts at vaccination. And that just seems bizarre to me. You mentioned hospitals, Annabelle. Mm-hmm. And you, you had a, a doctor on the Hui, which you produced uh, last night, uh, I think an ED doctor from Middlemore. But this is, of course, where the focus really is now that we are in Auckland, certainly in the suppression phase. Every modulation of the settings is determined not necessarily so much by case numbers, unless they predict what the pressure will be on the health system. And as health expert after health expert, including those at the coalface, have told us, there is not a lot of slack in the system, right? I mean, 
this is a hospital that's sort of become the ground zero for, for COVID, mm. particularly in South Auckland, obviously. And, you know, up until a couple of years ago, it had sewage leaking from the walls. So it's pretty concerning to think how much of the load they're going to have to carry. But, yeah, we interviewed Dr. Enia Tomash, who is a, an ED consultant, and you know, mm. basically they struggle on a good day there. They're dealing with all sorts of stuff, you know, heart attacks, strokes, gunshot wounds, and now COVID on top of it. So in terms of the health system, and this kind of leads into the argument about whether or not we let go of or, or we shorten MIQ stays because, I mean, MIQ has sort of triaged our COVID cases that are coming through the border and if we don't have it there and we don't know what what other variants are going to come through in the gestation periods and when you might test and what the efficacy of Pfizer will be for those so any discussion about MIQ it seems to me would have to consider how our health system will be able to cope with that and what happens to the people that go into the regions who aren't going to be in Auckland and you know are people prepared to not go to hospital if they have a car accident or a heart attack or a stroke because those beds are now caring for people who have got sick on the way home or have infected others when they've got home we didn't hear today about the MIQ changes they were reportedly discussing that at Cabinet on today, which is Tuesday. Uh, and I think we're going to hear about that on Wednesday uh, from Minister for Everything, Chris Hipkins, and whoever else. One of the quite compelling arguments is that now that we have more than 100 people who have tested positive for COVID who are isolating at their homes in Auckland, it does at that juncture seem odd that people who have are double vaccinated, have tested repeatedly negative for COVID, are then going into a quarantine facility, an MIQ facility, for 14 days. That does that is that is an inconsistent approach, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah. Look, the MIQ system as we know it is on its last legs now. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it's it's essentially scrapped before Christmas. Even today Chris Hipkins was saying that, you know, we'll probably get into the high hundreds of daily cases before things sort of uh, tamp down again uh, in the nation. If, if we're getting five, 600 positive COVID cases in the community each day, yeah, you, you're right. It seems insane to be, you know, chasing down and imprisoning people who are double vaccinated, who have tested negative before they get on a plane with a bunch of other people who have tested negative. Um, I mean, it's just a bad use of resources, if nothing else. That's and and look, probably not before time as well. The days when we could afford to be, you know, concerned about one case getting into the community, those days are over. So. I mean, it comes back to this idea, doesn't it, of elimination being this gloriously, comparatively simple system where you just have all your kind of, all your shields up and your, you know, anti-aircraft missiles for COVID pointed outwards. And now you have all these different wheels moving and wheels within wheels, whether it's restrictions on MIQ, whether it's different 
areas, whether it's the different systems within that, whether it's the different testing regimes, whether it's the different rules for traveling. I mean, you mentioned Christmas earlier in the piece, Ben. I mean, you know, a lot of people are looking towards Christmas. A lot of people have been told that they're looking to make that happen. But Annabelle, how does it work if everyone who has to, you know, Auckland is bad enough getting out of the city in peace times, you know, before Christmas, <laughs> let alone if everyone has to stop and show their VAC cert and their test result, even the pressure on the testing centres in the lead up to Christmas, or do we have a different way of doing the t- It's just, it just feels like such a, it feels, it, it makes me tired even just thinking about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I always like Auckland without the Aucklanders. So, I mean, I think just stay home for Christmas, like go out. But that won't work because if they're all here, if everyone maybe, does that, Annabelle maybe, won't be. Maybe you don't need to cross the border. <laughs> um, this is true. Yeah. The other thing, of course, this week is that schools are back to some degree, the the top two years of the school. Um which on this podcast we call Form 6 and Form 7. I think that's our official style position. <laughs> um, uh, and and that pressure grows too, doesn't it? Because I don't know if, um, Annabelle, you have any children, but uh, there are, you know, a lot of parents are growing a lot of, uh, a lot of kids are, you know, really desperate to get back to school and see their mates. A lot of kids are missing those kind of rituals, but as well as the learning Chris Hipkins um, is going to say some more about that, I think, too. But one of the things that's been interesting in in Auckland is that a bunch of schools, when they were told you're reopening on October 26th, straight after Labour Weekend, no, we're not. (laughs) They said, no, we're not. And and that seemed to me remarkable. Like, as I said, that's a really complex situation. Everyone is doing a lot of stuff, but I thought, I don't know, maybe it's probably unfair to pin this on Hipkins, but had they had the proper conversations, there's been a bit of time. It just seemed weird to me that Western Springs... No, Western Springs was always going to wag, right? Oh, come on. (laughs) Come on. Don't blame. It was just one pigeon. It was just one pigeon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 the principal and the board of trustees at Western Springs would just be like, look, our kids learn just as much getting high in the that park is outrageous. as they do it's great in the school. It's a great school. Let's just... My, ch- my children are alumni of Western Springs. How, how very dare you. But, you yeah, know, I think that actually I've heard of a couple of kura Hmm. That, that have chosen not to open. And, you know, the reason being that Rangatahi, again, not all of them have had the opportunity to get vaccinated. A lot of them live in multi-generational households and the sense is that for the well-being of the wider whānau that it's better for them to continue with online learning, which I totally get. And if I had a kid that age... I've got kids older and younger, but I I would have um, totally supported that. And then on the flip side, it's like, oh, that's half of it. That's, you know, is that going to be another layer that those kids have to work through later on because they haven't been able to Hmm. go back to class the way other schools and other places feel more comfortable to do so. Hey, just coming back to MIQ, can I say that I think there's a strong and growing feeling among Māori that, you know, any opening of the borders really needs to be done not in consultation with Māori but in co-design with Māori. Hmm. Um, A, because... 
um, what's that thing called, that document? Is that legal? The treaty. Mm. And um, secondly, <laughs> um, because, you know, Māori have a lot to lose and, um, mm. you know, this outbreak was one person from Australia. So when you've got thousands of people coming home and returning to all different parts of the country, regardless of whether they've been tested or not, you know, this thing jumps on people wherever they might be. So I, I think that we're going to see, as we edge closer to border discussions, yeah. I'm sure that um, you'll see more Māori leaders pushing for a co-design model. It'll be interesting to see what what they come up with. I mean, I'd be amazed if they allowed people to fly into Christchurch and then just zip out to... Um, Littleton or wherever, but but they might they, yeah, they and also they might they might start off by saying if you test negative six thousand times you can leave at day ten uh, you know and then stagger it down that way within Auckland and, and also too you know like they might need to consult with other Pacific Island nations about that because they they may not be comfortable with having people that have an MIQ trying to jump over or. Hey, Ben, um, you must have been excited to see the other day, I forget which day it was, but it was one of the days that was in the week that went before this week. I'm I'm, I'm familiar with the eternal present that we float in like astronauts untethered from our shuttle, just yeah. just floating through space forever without a a sense of up or down. Flat. Surface. Time moving forwards, and um, well, uh, two of your two of your personal heroes, Judith Collins and Megan Woods, were on the stage there. Ah, there are a few others on the stage there. Nikki Willis, Nicola Willis, was on the stage there. Who else was there? There was a whole bunch of them. It was like a super group, really. But it was the first time since John Key and uh, Helen Clark in the late seventeenth century stood in the Beehive Theatre together and said no to smacking, that we had this bipartisan presentation yeah. uh, on on housing density and on pushing through reforms that will allow uh, most people to put three houses and three storeys and just basically pushing through against the NIMBY tendency. Pretty positive politics. What did you, I'm, I mean, happy for you to speak on either or both of the substance of the policy or the the politics of it, of having that cross-party accord. Uh, yeah, I think uh, Matthew Hooten, my old uh, friend and colleague, summed up the politics reasonably well in, his, in his Herald column where he said... Sometimes when <laughs> I listen to um, the RNZ 9 to noon, I imagine him listening to it. Does he listen, does, Do you think he listens to it and just sort of shouts at the radio? Do you think that's what happens? No, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's, um, he's quite good at, uh, good, good at moving on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry, you were uh, saying not not from Twitter. He has to get off Twitter. But um, your the, your personal talisman, Matthew Hooten, uh, said what? He, he said, you know, a, a bipartisan announcement of a policy is always a sure sign that both parties have lost all credibility on the issue, <laughs> uh, and 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 are, and are looking to salvage mm. just some kind of draw from the matter. And he he used as examples the now many years ago superannuation accord, uh, which Labor and and National signed up to after both absolutely shooting their credibility, going back on promises, mm. smacking accord, you know, which is one you know, just, you know, widely unpopular, very widely unpopular uh, position. Kids like it, though. So it's, it, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Well, none of them said they didn't when it was legal to hit them. Like, we, they, you know, yeah. They, they they all became pretty bold after two thousand nine. <laughs> In fact, yeah, you can see you can see there's a turning point right there, wasn't With it? With their opinions, <laughs> like, uh, started, started getting a lot more back chat. But uh, that would be a much better vaccination incentive system. I'm going to give you a. I'm going to give you the strap. Which one do you want, the jab or the strap? <laughs> the um, and and now housing, which you know, far you know, what's what's housing prices have increased by about what thirty eight percent in the four years that um, Ardern has been prime minister. Yeah. Um, from the start of the podcast, you know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So d- during this podcast, you guys have both earned like about $60,000 in capital gains and anything they can do, you know, the, the government's much vaunted um, changes to uh, tax treatment of rental income has just started to bite now. You know, I think yeah. those changes came into effect at the beginning of October. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem to have done anything in the lead up t- to it. Um and and so you know what one advantage of the one advantage of the entire country being engulfed in a pandemic is it gives the government a lot of political cover for other things um and one of those things is passing a law which is you know or, or bringing forward a policy which is deeply unpopular with councils with nimbys with you know people who own full sections in in Auckland um who would probably be labor voters in the last election at any rate um, it was quite. It was quite entertaining to watch David Seymour do kind of uh, uh, gymnastics, trying to <laughs> defend his position of saying he to explain why, as a libertarian, property rights he opposed it very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes there's a tension between the good people of Epsom and you know your knuckles bloodied from knocking on their doors, and. Uh, and your libertarian ideology. It, I, like, just shameful, shameful, <laughs> just humiliating sort of prostration by him whenever this comes up. Um, mm. But, look, you know, this, this, these are the sorts of compromises you make as a major party, which ACT now is. Yes, um, yes. You know, Seymour's <laughs> days of, of peacefully spouting off uh, libertarian ideology into the void and twerking on national television, those carefully days are over now um but yeah look it's good you know let's let you know let it let uh, the opposition share a stage with the government which always makes them look a little bit a little bit more chief chiefly like you know rangatira to rangatira uh, relations well, it just seems a little bit like you know, i think that i think that i sorry uh, forgive me for saying optics but i feel like the optics of it are kind of really good because i feel like from time to time rising above mm. The, the 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 kind of bear pit of politics just plays really well. Obviously, people don't pay attention to that sort of stuff a lot of the time. You know, when someone stands up in the house and gives a speech on a bill, <laughs> on, on a go- opposition member gives a speech on a government bill, which is broadly supportive, that is not going to make headlines. I get that. But I do feel from time to time it's a when you have the leadership of the opposition party doing that, it just like what is like it just it just looks like you have principles. I don't know. Um, Annabelle, it came after the National Party put out what was a they had their business plan, which was a bit wobbly, and they forgot to include women in the unemployment. But before that, they had a reasonably comprehensive alternative plan on the COVID response, which was 
you know, fairly, fairly, fairly positively received. And it does look almost as if we're in danger of having a competent opposition for a moment here. It looks really grown up, eh? When you when you do that stuff, I have to say I thought that um, Collins' quote was really good too. The, um, the people who are worried about losing the character of your neighbourhood, I'd say that when nobody owns your own home in the neighbourhood, then it's already lost its its character. Mm. Um, I think. I mean, I I do find the NIMBY argument ironic because a lot of the people that bemoan the loss of character in their neighbourhoods are the same people that roll their eyes when Maori try to protect the, uh, a wahi tapu or, I mean, if they think that's bad, imagine what it must be like for Ngāti Whātua since, like, the 1800s watching the character of their neighbourhood change. It's a great point, actually, when you think about it, um, uh, you know, Tangata Whenua, um, David Seymour, who defended the the NIMBY position on the basis that when people bought those properties, the rules were A, B and C. <coughs> Presumably, if you extrapolated that, forget it, you know, even before Titiriti, let's go back to the rules. And when the when the uh, Europeans arrived in, in this country, those are the rules. So maybe we should, that was the basis on which the welcome was extended. Is that, my, should I just, is this going anywhere? So I forget that? The, I, yeah, I think, I think the rule. I, I felt the vibe, the vibe was there. Yeah, okay. It's a good vibe. Okay. Keep going. Good. Roll with it. Um, um, the, there is always um, the potential, Ben, for Judith Collins to uh, jettison all advancements with the National Party. And today there was that slightly weird thing on vaccine mandates where she said she didn't want to divide New Zealand with vaccine mandates, but she did want vaccine mandates. Yeah, and I think it's possible to reconcile those positions. You know, you could say um, we, we, we want a framework where mm. employers and or business owners are allowed to require vaccinations in order for people to work for them or to enter their premises. Um the, the government kind of, you know, has a nod towards that where there's a sort of opt-in, opt-out for some businesses. If you decide not to require vaccinations, you can open up in, under the traffic light system with some greater restrictions. You know, if you're a hairdresser, you need to, I think, uh, lean over on a ladder from two metres away or something and just sort of buzz with a long attachment on clippers or something like that. But... <laughs> So, so there is some manner of choice in the in the system as as proposed, and I think Collins was kind of getting towards you know just a further delineation, you know, somewhere further on the line towards oh, personal see. freedom, and saying that you know vaccine mandates or vaccine um, passports were you know were an important tool to before we got up to ninety percent. Once we're at ninety percent, it's open slather, mm-hmm. and and these mm-hmm. kind of seemed mm-hmm. like weird sort of tweaks that were just sort of added today, you know, to try and win the Dave Dobbin vote or something. I I didn't really understand why they were trying to overcomplicate what seemed like a pretty straightforward position uh, that they previously had. What? What do you mean? Speak. What? Who were the government? The, the, the national, the national party, the national party. Oh, pre- the, national, the party. national party previously oh, said, "Yeah, we'll have vaccine." Uh, well, I'll tell you why. It's because Judith Collins just said something. That's why it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a fancy further delineation or any of that 
claptrap. It was just she opened her mouth and said something. That's how it worked. Yeah, but often people say things because of things, and it's not a it's not an ironclad law of politics. It does. It sometimes does happen. It does happen sometimes. <laughs> Very. It you does know. happen sometimes. <laughs> There's always the possibility that there's a reason people say things in politics. We shouldn't give up hope, even on day 71. <laughs> we, we, we can't give up mankind's search for meaning just because we're entering week 11. <laughs> we, well, we agree to, agree we to disagree. To, uh, I was just going to say, speaking of politics, I can hear my children, like, attempting a coup d'etat upstairs against my husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's a spell. Yeah. It's a spell. <laughs> um, okay, we've got to go. We can't go without talking about um, uh, COP26, which is in Glasgow next week. Uh, we won't get into it. Poor old James Shaw is going to have to arrive there with his kind of little little kind of rucksack of embarrassment with New Zealand's emissions record. Should, though, I know it's difficult circumstances, but... Take a, take a beautiful selection of cheeses, though. Some lovely cheese. Take some lovely cheese. I'm sure he will. Mm. Um, Annabelle, do you think... Scott Morrison is going. Scott Morrison's going to go, despite everything, having put together some <laughs> incredibly weird, circuitous deal with the Nationals over there. But shouldn't Jacinda Ardern, if it's the her generation's nuclear-free moment, isn't it, despite everything, some a place you just have to be? Um, I think it's one of those situations where you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If she goes, everyone will criticise her for not being here to front mm. up about COVID when we're at a re- really critical part of the outbreak. Mm. If she doesn't go, people will slam her for not going because it is our nuclear-free moment. I, I actually think she needs to be here at the moment, my personal view. Uh, good. Ben. Okay, we just need to get this. I was doing a ZB slot earlier today and I, and I, I held forth that it was totally justifiable for the Prime Minister to leave the country to go to COP26 and then then I think Hayden Monroe on the other end of the line was like no she's going over for the EU signing, the, you know the free, free trade agreement signing and I look I have to admit I didn't I just I didn't read the topics before the call started. I was just improving. I thought, what's overseas? Climate change. Well, it's really it's know. really great to be able to <laughs> offer a platform for you here on this uh, podcast, gone by lunchtime, to apologise for not doing your preparatory work for your yeah. slots on drive time on News Talk ZB. So what, I, what I'm so what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to make amends and say I don't I don't think the prime minister is intending to go to COP26. That, no, I don't right? think she is. She's no. hosting APEC. She's hosting APEC. She's hosting APEC. She's she's the Zoom host. Yes, she has, she has to be at Prim House to let other she's people gonna be, into the lobby. She's doing it. You can't she's doing leave. it from your. You can't. She's doing it from your house, mate. You can't. She's doing a house swap, <laughs> and she's going to do it with her forehead rising <laughs> like <laughs> Mount Olympus into the frame. Yeah, she can't leave Biden in the lobby. Right? Like, <laughs> someone's got to let Biden into the meeting and take him off mute. She can't, she can't be fucking flying all over the world. Yeah, look, James Shaw can do it. He's, he's, he's fine. He's mm. fine. Guys, I, I think my husband is under house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, we'll, we'll wind it up. Um, uh, there's probably going to be several other pigeons with spears through them scattered all over Annabelle's house. Maybe they're warnings. <laughs> and <laughs> in episode two, we'll learn how these strands of the narrative fold together. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Tina. Thanks, members. Thanks, everybody. Lots of love. Bye.
ora e te iwi, te ai he butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.